The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It really feels so much easier to go away to do a retreat, and I taught also on the West Coast at Spirit Rock. And uh, it's really nice now because there are so many experienced teachers who can cover for me when I'm gone, so I hope you enjoyed if you were around those weeks, enjoyed the other teachers in the community. And it's probably a good time to say a little bit about retreat practice, because those of you who've been practicing for a while, you know, when I, I've been doing this now for a long time, Common Ground started in 1993, and when you look at those people who stick with the practice, because... If you don't know, it's not easy to do this practice. I mean, some really beautiful things come. Right? We have good sets, a lot of calm, a lot of clarity. But part of what's happening as we become more mindful, more sensitive, is we see what the mind is like. And, you know, there's a lot of habit energy, a lot of conditioning of the mind that's not pleasant to see or feel. And... We're training ourselves not to think, I've got to go in there and clean up. It's a mess. Somebody's got to take care of this mess. Which, of course, is exactly how we got the mess, by the way. (laughs) right? Thinking that I have to go fix it is generally how we break things, including the messiness of the mind. So the practice is difficult, and so it's really easy to take it up for a while and then say, okay, That's enough. And find a good reason not to do it, not to sit in the morning, not to find a center like Common Ground to keep coming back to. And one of the things that keeps people digging deeper and deeper and developing the practice and then getting the deeper positive fruits from doing the practice is when they go on retreat. I sometimes kiddingly say that, you know, if anything were a cult of retreatants. You know, like if you if you hang around here long enough, somebody's going to ask you, how many retreats have you been on? Right? And they'll say, oh, I did a weekend retreat. And then they oh, I did a nine-day retreat. You know, and then somebody's sure to say, I did a three-month retreat. <laughs> and on and on like that. Kind of a, trying to top the other people. So, I know it can be a little neurotic, but there's the reason why that's highlighted in this tradition is when we're in our daily life, interacting with people out in the world, you know, we're really a product of our environments a lot. So when our environment is all about consumerism and reacting to what's pleasant and reacting to what's unpleasant, we, despite our good intentions, we just get swept along with everybody else. doesn't matter if we realize that that's not the way to live or that doesn't lead it lead to anything positive, we'll just get swept along because it isn't personal. It doesn't matter that you personally don't want to be swept along by the culture. We will be. Because the way the mind is, is a function of, initially is a function very much of our surrounding circumstances. So when we pick ourselves up and put ourselves into a retreat environment, then we get particular effects that arise when the mind is in that particular environment. I know some of you 
Megan and others, um, young adults, went out to the retreat property, Common Ground. That means all of us. We own a really a retreat farm built by an Amish family in the 1980s, and then we bought it um, just a couple couple years ago and are slowly developing it. So some community members have been going out from time to time. And just getting out of the city and putting down our cell phones and other ways that we connect to the wider world for a few days or longer, it really has a powerful effect to the mind. It's like when everything seems important, drawing the mind out into the world, the mind isn't going to turn its attention to the mind itself. That's really a revolutionary act. The quality of attention, of knowing, turning back in on itself. So the knowing mind gets interested in knowing what the mind is doing, how the mind is knowing, what it's knowing, how it's knowing. And like uh, any animal, which we are, you know, as long as the external, like what I can eat, what might eat me, what I can mate with, when those sort of seemingly bigger issues are there, then the attention is going to go out the sense doors, what we see, what we hear, And of course, our thinking is about all of that, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. And the mind isn't so interested in observing the activity of mind as another object, right? Because the activity of mind and the knowing, that's also something that's happening in the moment. But we tend not to, doesn't sort of register as relevant. But in terms of deeper understanding, it's the most important thing because so much of what we experience is, is a product of what, how the mind is, how the mind is seeing, how the mind is relating to what kind of attitude or perspective or understanding the mind is here in the moment. And mostly we completely miss it. So, just to give you a few options in case I've inspired you, There's a half-day retreat on Saturday the 13th. I'll lead that, 9 to 1. You can sign up in the lobby. Tom, our program host, can show you how to do that if you're interested. Generally, there's a half-day retreat on a Saturday early in the month and a day-long retreat on a Saturday late in the month, generally. And then just recently, we started registration for the Labor Day, the eight-day Labor Day retreat, which is open to everybody, even if you're relatively new to practice. You can just jump right in. But these retreats, these residential retreats that I lead are quite popular. So there's always a lottery. And uh, so the way it works is if you register in the first 10 days, then you're in the lottery. And then it's just a matter of chance whether you get one of the 33 spots. So to get to register or find out more about those residential retreats, we do it four times a year. Go to the, our website, commongroundmeditation.org, look under programs, look under retreats, look for residential retreats, and there will be a link there that will take you to some web pages that explain all about the, the how to register and what happens on a residential retreat. And then I mentioned Megan led a retreat for some young adults at our retreat property, which is different than where we do our residential retreats. We use a Catholic retreat center. And we have four practice periods a year for about a month. And you can come out for a couple days or seven days. And there's always a leader out there. And we don't have that many beds right now. There's just like five bedrooms. So we have five to seven people out there at a time. 
And that's uh, 24th of June to the 27th of July. And that registration is also open. And go to the website. One of the main menu items is retreat property. Click there and you'll see the summer practice period. And you can get more information there and register there online. And one more thing. Starting tomorrow night is our semi-annual community practice intensive. So this is for those of you who can't get away. you got kids, you don't have any vacation time, or for whatever reason you're taking care of a parent. And so twice a year, for two and a half weeks in June and two and a half weeks in December, people can sign up for what we call the community practice intensive. We meet on Monday night, so the next three Mondays we're going to meet, seven to nine, and we're all... Um, and you'll see a flyer out on the table in the lobby to give you a little bit more information about the practice intensive. We're all deciding for these two and a half weeks to increase our formal practice in the midst of our daily life schedule. Maybe getting up a little bit earlier, sitting in the evening, maybe we don't normally sit in the evening, listening to a few more talks during the week from the online collections out there. Um, meeting on Monday nights. And then we end on, I think it's the 18th or 19th of June on Thursday, whatever that day of the month is, um, for a day-long retreat. Now, some people won't be able to get off work, but you come for any amount of that day you can on the 19th, and we end with a closing circle where people share, like, what was it like to do a little bit more formal practice in the midst of my busy life with my all my obligations? including a little bit of time in the middle of the day, even if it's just five or ten minutes at your desk with a book or a report in front of you as if you're reading it, <laughs> but you're just doing a little formal practice or you're walking, doing a little walking practice. Because that's the key. You know, creatively, we have to bring it into our lives. Once you get a sense of the value of this practice, then actually that's hard enough, but the really hard part is taking that inspiration, oh, this practice is relevant. It really changes lives. So the question is, how can I resist, you know, checking the internet one more time or my email one more time or calling this person or all the other ways we fill up our day so that we can formally train the mind so that it becomes more a natural training of the mind. It would be nice, of course, to not need formal practice and just to be able to practice in daily life as we're doing our job, as we're interacting with people. But the force of habit is to be respected. And our for, the primary habit we have is to be to absorb in to the activities that we're involved in. So we, in a sense, get lost in it. We're not awake. We're not aware when we're walking from here to our car or chatting with a friend or washing the dishes. We're lost in the experience or we're lost in thinking. We're lost in something. But mindful awareness means that what is sustained is this reflectiveness that I was pointing to in the guided meditation. A good definition is the mind is remembering to be aware, remembering to recognize that it's like this now. So whether I recognize that it's like this now, like sitting is like this now, or hearing my voice is like this now. It's like this now, whether or not I recognize it. But it creates a different, like it's a different karmic act to be 
consistently recognizing that it's like this now. Sort of sustaining that reflectiveness. It's like this now. This is what the mind... Now, maybe like, for example, I'm irritated and I'm sort of storming maybe a little bit externally, but internally maybe a little bit more, you know, complaining, judging, being critical. And it it's a revolutionary act to realize that the mind is aversive. Oh, it's aversion, being known. So one way to get a sense of what we mean by mindful awareness or this reflectiveness is this phrase that you can just play with actually in your mind. So initially I would actually repeat the phrase off and on during the day and then off and on during your formal sits because you can't avoid getting a sense of what I mean by being reflective when you say, like when you recognize what the mind is knowing and you say then in your mind, oh, judging is being known. And you really emphasize the is being known. So it's not so much that the mind is judging or that you're hearing or that you're seeing or that you're feeling the pain in the knee, but that you recognize it's something being known in this moment. It's something being known. It's something being known. That the mind is knowing. And then once you get a sense of that the mind is knowing, you realize you're not doing the knowing. Like You don't have to try to know the sound of the clap. That just happens, right? So once you get a sense that knowing is just happening on its own, in a sense, we in sort of a Buddhist psychology, we say in every moment, it's always the same thing. There's an object being known. Object being known. And you can't have an object without the being known because it wouldn't make sense. Like like that old thing, like if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, you know, it doesn't make a sound. Well, you know, objects are only relevant because of their being known. So we're we're kind of recognizing this. We're recognizing that objects are being known effortlessly, naturally. It's what we call we call it a natural process to undermine the sense that I'm doing it. Objects are being known whether you do something or not, right? That's just the very nature of the mind. An object is being known. Now the question is, is there enough wisdom to recognize the simple truth that our subjective experience is always an object is being known, an object is being known. And once we get some sense of that, then we can begin to get a sense of, well, how is it being known? Like with aversion, with greed, with clarity, with joy, you know, with confusion. How is the mind knowing? So not just that the mind is knowing, but how is it knowing? And then, for example, if it's knowing with aversion, then what's unfolding from that? Like what's that aversion setting in motion as things unfold one moment at a time? And we see that, well, things are getting tight when the mind is knowing with aversion or knowing with greed. Well, what happens when the mind is knowing with wisdom or kindness or patience or clarity? Well, something else gets us emotion, right? So this is how we transform the mind. We realize it's always an object being known. We realize that the way the mind is knowing gets colored by habit. Like some of us tend to be aversive types. Some of us tend to be confused or deluded types. Some of us tend to be greedy types, right? And then we get a sense that yeah, when that habit energy 
is affecting the is-being-known part, object-being-known. It doesn't matter if the object is pleasant or unpleasant, it's still being known, and it's still being known with a particular attitude. So this part of the path, and for those of you who have been reading Joseph Goldstein's book that we've been going through the last year and a half, this is chapter 43. And we're looking at the Buddhist teachings on the Eightfold Path. And so one-third of the path, so not talking about it in eight steps, but in three, we have the part of the spiritual path or the path of awakening that's about bringing awareness into relationships. We talked about that a while back, several months ago. And there's the part of the path that's about understanding uh, the sort of wisdom part of the path. Here, we're really talking about the stability of mind that sees things as they are. So in Pali and Sanskrit, the languages that the original teachings of the Buddha were recorded in, the word is samadhi. You might even heard it like getting close to one of those words like dharma and karma and nirvana or nibbana, samsara that are just part of popular culture. So samadhi is a better use, a better word to use than concentration, which is often how it gets translated. Because we, most of us relate concentration with tightening the mind, like a tight focus. But that's not the kind of concentration that we're trying to develop in our life. Better to think about samadhi or concentration as a balance, a real stable balance. So instead of like, a tenuous balance where we're putting something on top of a sharp edge so the balance doesn't last very long. My teacher, Joseph Goldstein, the person who wrote this book, he talks about inverting, like if a bowl's been upside down, like a perfectly round bowl, and you put a marble, you can that marble can be in balance for you know a tenth of a second, and then it rolls off. You find it, you put it back, and it's just right in that right, sweet spot for a moment and then rolls off. But if you turn the bowl over, then there's going to be a lot more stability. The mind or the marble, you know, it's going to stay there. And even if the bowl gets rocked, something challenging arises, something really enticing or something really difficult, the marble might move around, but its tendency is to come back to balance. And that's a nice image for samadhi. The mind is much more resilient. So as objects are being known and some challenging objects arise for us, let's say, really enticing, beautiful objects, really painful, difficult objects, confusing objects of experience. But the mind's tendency is not to feel or not to be pushed around by what comes and goes. Now, we all know this, right? Because there are times, maybe even today, where we were like, the upside-down bowl. And because we're already sort of out of balance, whatever happens just continues to throw us out of balance. And then other times, again, maybe today, it was like there was a lot more resilience. And it's like things that would normally bother us don't bother us. So what is the difference between those moments when the mind has a lot of resilience and those moments when the mind doesn't? And there's a whole field of study, both in child psychology, but just general Western psychology, where researchers, like I, I used to take classes, I was a grad student at the U long ago in um, school psychology and 
um, at, at Psych. And um, I think her name was Ann Masden, who did a lot of research in that area where they, they looked at children who, you know, growing up in poverty, maybe a person of color, maybe a few other um, attributes that uh, are challenges for development for the child. And, you know, they'd look at a big group. And then they'd look at some kids who had all those so-called strikes against them or those difficult uh, factors in their upbringing. Some of them do pretty well. So what, what happened to those kids that did really well even though they were in poverty, even though they ended up going to bad school, even though they were a person of color or some part of some ethnic group or some group that um, there are, there's a lot of prejudice against or a lot of you know, obstacles for them in society. Why do some do better than others? And this, this is kind of what we're getting to, like why on some days is this mind really stable? And this is what we're experimenting with in our practice. You know, when we sit down, we're, we're basically, even if we don't know anything, we're just learning from trial and error. Like, oh, when I think about this and I take the content of my thoughts personally and I trust the feelings of aversion, oh, uh, like that it leads somewhere, like getting angry leads somewhere, right? Then I notice I get all tied in a knot. I mean, how many times do we need to do that before we kind of get it? Like the lawfulness. It's only because we're not being reflective that we can act out a version, take it personally, tens of thousands of times and still feel like it's a rational thing to do. To not just get upset, because we can't necessarily stop ourselves from getting upset, but when we get upset, feeling like it's an appropriate avenue to walk down. Why do we do that? Only because we haven't clearly seen what gets that emotion. Same with lust and greediness and all the other unwholesome qualities that we know well. So this really has to do with right effort. So this part of the path is really about developing the mind through right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And together they're called samadhi or steadiness of mind which is the same as samadhi. So this is the samadhi section. And the way the Buddha talks about samadhi, he says, wanting to have deep insight doesn't help. But developing, um, developing samadhi, you can't help but develop wisdom. It's like The proximate cause for wisdom to develop is having that stable, steady, clear mind or heart. When you have it, there's nothing that can stop you from having insight when the mind is clear and stable. But when our mind is like all over the place, we're not going to understand things in a more clear, deep way. So that stability is called samadhi and it's defined by right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. But in a way, concentration isn't something we do. It's the result of these first two things. Right effort, and right mindfulness. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, right effort, right mindfulness, and then hear what you have to say or hear your questions that you have. So right effort is relatively easy. It starts with 
um, I guess you could call it faith or confidence that we're not helpless. Because sometimes, you know, when our mind is a wild thing, and uh, do you remember that book? What was his name? The Wild Things? Who wrote? Yeah, Where Wild Things Are. Who wrote that again? Maurice Sendak, yeah. They made an opera out of that, actually. So most of you know it. Who, those of you who have kids probably know it. I, I used to teach elementary school back in the 80s, and, and we used to, that was a great book for kids back then. But anyway, of course, he, his mind is the wild things. It's not like they're actual wild things. Sorry to break the news, but <laughs> it's a simile or a metaphor for his mind, right? The little boy's mind are these, and what is the phrase? They, st- they roared and they gnashed their teeth. Does anybody remember it? No? Anyway, yeah, because that's, and so the idea is when our mind is acting out, when it's storming, it's very easy to think there's nothing I can do about it. It's like, I'm just full of lust and the only way to deal with this greediness or this lust is to get what I want. You know, that's how I settle down is I actually get what I want or it's uh, storming with aversion. You know, if I get rid of or figure out how I'm going to get rid of, have a plan for revenge or whatever, then I'll settle down. Or the other way we settle down is we completely exhaust ourselves with the greed or with the aversion and we kind of collapse and we feel better. <laughs> but it's not like we have any insight or understanding. It's just that the mind's too tired to continue its neurotic activity. So the first step is we need some faith or confidence that how the mind is has to do with two things. What got set in motion in the past. So like when I have a lot of fear or I have a lot of defensiveness or aversion, I can't necessarily do anything about the fact that fear is arising for me. Because the fact that fear is arising might be what got set emotion in the past. But I can relate to that fear in a particular way. If I relate to it one way, I feed it. If I relate to it another way, I diminish it. So there's always this present moment input. And a lot of people, all they see is like, I, this is just who I am. So they're just looking at the past causes. And they're basically... Assuming it's a deterministic model, like because I've been really greedy or really aversive in the past, then of course I'm this way now and there's nothing to do but just bear it, which is basically giving ourselves an excuse to do the same thing and set in motion the same kind of results for the future. And that way nothing ever changes. In fact, we generally strengthen the negative or unwholesome habits of mind. So one of the things the Buddha would really emphasize is this present moment input. How is the mind relating to what's arising? Not lamenting what's arising. A lot of doubt, a lot of aversion, a lot of greed, a lot of whatever. Not lamenting it, but but noticing what is the skillful way to be relating to the aversion. What is the skillful way? And as I said earlier, you know, in terms of practice, it's difficult. I did a three-week retreat and earlier in May, and then I led a retreat out in California. And during the retreat that I was on, there was a 
a Burmese teacher who had come to the country to teach, a monk, Buddhist monk. And uh, and I was working with some aversion that was very subtle but very persistent aversion in my mind. Sort of had flavors of fear and um, not being good enough and and uh, doubt, you know. But but the the underlying flavor was what we call aversion, like not wanting the moment to be the way it was, wanting a different moment, not liking it, wanting it to change. And so we always, you know. Mostly we just acted out unconsciously, but to the degree we begin to see it, then it makes sense to be averse to the unpleasantness of the aversion, right? Like to judge yourself for being averse or to judge yourself for being afraid or having doubt. I shouldn't be having doubt. You know, I've been practicing for or whatever. But that is how we set in motion what we've set in motion in the past. And so we keep getting the same result. So what's the opposite? Well, metta, or loving kindness. Oh, this is how it is. Aversion is being known. So this is the first step in a different approach, is that moment of mindful awareness. Oh, this is being known. It's like this. So it's a receptive instead of a aversive no. It's a yes instead of a no. Now, we don't want to say yes because it's unpleasant. You know, but when unpleasant mind states arise, saying yes is sane because the unpleasant mind state is already here. It's not like we have a choice. It's already the way that it is. So saying yes aligns the mind with reality because it's already this way. The mind is already not liking something that's there. So we're saying yes, not yes, I choose, I want it to be this way, but yes, it is this way now. Yes, this is what's being known. It feels like this. It looks like this. Yes. If this is all you do, it will be life transforming. If you just go through Monday practicing, right? You don't have to be perfect. Just doing the best you can to recognize what's arising and somehow, and you can even use the word in your mind, say yes to everything. Absolutely everything. Doesn't mean you don't do something. You know, there could be a bi- biblical flood tomorrow. <laughs> I, was, I was told you I was in California and I was preparing one of my talks uh, when I was leading the retreat and all of a sudden the earth started to shake. I don't know if anybody heard, there was a, a relatively small earthquake north of Napa I think it was just 4.2, but we were close enough that we could, we could definitely feel it. Yeah, so even if there were a biblical flood tomorrow, right? You know, how we relate to that matters. Like, we could say, oh, it's like this. And then if there's a lot of fear, it's like this. The fear's like this. Or whatever emotion arises, it's like this. So coming into alignment with however the mind is, whatever the mind is doing, wisdom understands that it's good, it's helpful to not uh, reject what is already true. 
it doesn't help. It's completely dysfunctional. To And what it does is it starts to align the mind with denial or ignorance instead of reality. So the, the practice, mindful awareness, the Buddha's teachings on awakening, it's all about aligning the mind with the way it is. And we're purifying that relationship, how the mind is relating to the present moment with greed and aversion, which means it's not okay with the way it is, or delusion, which means it's not aware of the way it is, to wisdom, which means the mind sees clearly it's like this now, without any projection and without any dependence on our ideas of the way we think it is or the way we think it should be. Even the idea that it's personal. So when doubt arose for me, it seems like that doubt is so personal, right? But that's a thought that it's personal. Actually, doubt is just that experience of doubt, which has a particular emotional feeling for most of us when we have doubt, right? So there's that emotion, and it may be a very unpleasant emotion when we have doubt. And then there's some content, which are these sort of thoughts flitting through the mind. That's what it is. And the addition, it's personal, that's just another object that can be known. Oh, this is the mind taking doubt personally, and it's being known. Right? So that's attachment or identification, and that's being known. So we can even depersonalize attachment and identification by seeing it as an object being known. An object being known. And this is really the heart of the practice. So we, right effort is the initial stabilizing of the mind because we realize there is something we can do. And the Buddha divides it up into four ways. And this is a useful Way, a useful thing to remember in terms of like how to make effort. So first, we feel empowered to be responsible for the way the heart and mind is. It's not a determined thing. We're just screwed because we've got this kind of habit energy. There's a way to actively participate with how the mind is. And even if we don't have any good information, we're kind of going cold. We just heard about mindfulness, but not about much more. Just through trial and error, if you just remember these four places to experiment, preventing unwholesome qualities from arising, abandoning unwholesome qualities that are already present in the mind, developing wholesome qualities of mind, and maintaining those wholesome qualities of mind. So right now, we all have a mind, right? And so we can just get a sense. Now, hopefully, but who knows, hopefully, mostly, our minds are relatively wholesome right now. Mostly. But it could be some of you are really attracted to somebody in the room and there's you're caught in greed or you like somebody's sweater. Or I guess not too many people are wearing sweaters tonight, but, <laughs> you know, shirt. Or you really want to go home and watch some program. So you could be caught in greed. You could be really averse to the heat or you don't like the sound of my voice or, you know, it could be any number of things that you're averse to. You could have pain in your knee. So we can watch this mind and we can get a sense, okay, is there something that's about to come into the mind that I don't trust because it seems like greed or aversion 
or doubt or delusion. And then we want to experiment to try and like, how might this mind prevent that which seems unwholesome to me from getting a stronghold in the mind? This is the most important way to practice because once something's in the mind, it's not so easy to abandon. It's much easier to keep something from getting a stronghold in the mind because it's relatively weak until we spin spin with it for a while. And then it kind of gets entrenched. Like if you're complaining about somebody in your mind for half an hour and then you realize, oh my God, it's not so easy to stop your mind from... you You can see very clearly how unproductive it is. But it's not easy to put it down, right? Like I said, generally, when we get ahead of steam with some unskillful pattern, the usual way we put it down is we get exhausted. Right? Or we pick up another obsession that's even more seductive. Because the mind is a creature of habit. So the preventing is really important. The Buddha calls this kind of... uh, like watching the mind, he calls it guarding the sense doors. Like what we see, what we think, what we hear, what we smell. So for example, if you really hate somebody and they happen to be in the room with you and you can't help but see them, well, that's a huge trigger. So one of the ways to prevent all the negativity that might start moving in your mind is to leave the room. Because then the trigger, you know, won't be there. So, these are obvious things that you'll just learn from trial and error about preventing. And you know, most of us know the top three, four, five ways we obsess in unskillful ways. And I bet with a little reflection, you could get a sense of what are the triggers for those unskillful obsessions you have. And then you might have a sense, well, how can I prevent being triggered? And are you willing then to follow through Right, an experiment. Well, does that really then prevent the mind, protect the mind? Because nobody else is going to protect our mind. And then the other, you know, abandoning, like I said, is a little harder. But we have every incentive when when we recognize that our mind is involved in negative, some negative pattern, with negative qualities like greed, anger, and delusion. We have every incentive to do whatever it takes to change the quality of the mind. Because when we're spinning with aversion or greed or doubt, delusion, we're making it more likely that the mind is going to fall in that hole in the future. So whatever we can do, redirect the attention, right? Now when mindfulness is really strong, just seeing it is enough. It's like pops a balloon. The mind sees the destructiveness of the aversion and it just drops it. In the same way that if you noticed you were holding a hot pan that was burning your hands, you would just let go. So when mindfulness is clear and it can really see the destructiveness of the obsessive pattern, you drop it. But sometimes, a lot of the times, mindfulness isn't strong enough. So then you can redirect the attention or you can try to substitute So, for example, you notice you're spinning and it's really painful, but you can't let it go. You can start cultivating compassion for how painful the hating mind is. Hating really hurts. You know, hating this person really hurts. I care about how much this hurts in my heart right now. Because hate 
and care or compassion, they don't fit in the same mind at the same time. Try it sometime. Like, you're really angry at somebody and you're just obsessing, and then you bring your cat to mind or your dog to mind or, you know, an auntie who was really there for you to mind, who you really love, and you hold that person or that animal in your mind, and you'll see that you can have warm, loving feelings toward one person or being and continue to hate another. It's like the mind is distinct in that way. Just It sort of has one flavor in each moment. Now, you can go back and forth to some degree, but if you can hold your mind steady, you can really redirect. So these are the ways, and again, mostly you're going to learn through trial and error, feeling empowered that no matter how deep the obsession feels, there's something you can do. The last thing to do is to try to suppress it. Whatever it, whatever you can do, you know, to do something else. Now, the same with positive. We, we can always be developing wholesome qualities. Like to, right now, in this moment, even while you're listening and even while you're comprehending maybe something of what I'm saying, you could just remind your mind and body to be a little bit more relaxed right now, right? Like, because, you know, we have these tendencies just to hold tension in the body and the mind. And we could, also, we could just be cultivating as we're sitting here listening, comprehending. We could just also have a sense that we're all doing this together. You know, a pretty diverse group of people. We don't know each other really. Most of us don't know each other. And uh, how nice that is Right? And you see, we're cultivating just a very natural sense of compassion, kindness, tenderness. To whatever degree we don't get what I'm saying, we could be cultivating a sense of forgiveness. We could be cultivating a kind of alertness, like uh, really inspired to track what's going on. So there's all kinds of wholesome qualities that we could be actively developing. And this is something you can do all day long. It's not like you have to do it in your formal meditation time. And it's nice just to not to try to do too many because it gets confusing, but there may be one particular quality you intuitively, intuitively feel would be useful in terms of your personality. Maybe patience, maybe forgiveness, maybe alertness. Or whatever it might be, maybe a a general sense of uh, kindness or gentleness. And then you just like get interested in cultivating it. And the way you cultivate it is you don't pretend to be gentle when you're not. You it's so interesting. You just have to remember the possibility of being forgiving, or gentle, or kind, or clear. If you just remember it. It's like, uh, this is the interesting thing. Again, you'll learn this through trial and error. When you keep remembering the possibility of being more clear, each time you remember that, your mind is noticing in that moment, even if there isn't a lot of clarity, whatever clarity there is, you're noticing it. And by noticing it, it's becoming more dominant quality in your mind. Same with kindness, same with any wholesome quality. So the key to developing wholesome qualities is to recognize what are what are the wholesome qualities that are there as potential like potential to develop and to keep remembering them as you as many times during the day as you can 
So maybe just think of one quality you would like to have. More generosity, patience, more understanding, more like space or perspective. And just choose one and then just resolve to remember it. To remember that there is this quality mind, however undeveloped it might be, and to recognize how it's operating, even if it's very faint. But there it is. Oh, there is some clarity or there's some warmth in this heart right now. Or including, it could even be, I have some warmth about having a very closed heart. Right? We can even have some warmth about that. So that's what I mean. We just have to start where we're at with these wholesome qualities. And then maintaining the wholesome qualities, that's the fourth. So we're preventing unwholesome, abandoning the unwholesome that are already there, developing the wholesome, maintaining them. So maintaining, again, is just literally appreciating the wholesomeness of the wholesome qualities. And you can do this in other people too. It's such a great way to develop all your relationships in life, like with your boss or with your partner or with your kid, or to, oh, that's generosity I see in that person. Or that's, that's that beautiful discriminating wisdom, like the sword of wisdom. Like, oh, she just saw that. She sees it clearly, you know, and to really appreciate it. And just down the bus, the people you don't even know, you can just get an intuitive sense, oh yeah, the way that person moves, they're just so there. You know, they're really mindful, really paying attention. I really appreciate that. So it's really the maintenance of the wholesome quality has a lot to do with valuing, like learning to appreciate what's beautiful. In the same way that you'd appreciate a beautiful car or a beautiful iPhone 6 or, <laughs> you know, whatever in a very mundane way gets our attention, in a more subtle way, we can learn to appreciate the beautiful qualities we see in our own mind and heart and we see around us in other people's minds and heart too. Because they're there, but we have to recognize it. And the thing about right effort, it creates like we're taking care of the environment of the mind and then it's relatively easy to do the subtle work of mindfulness. So remember, mindfulness is remembering to recognize it's like this. So it's this reflective awareness. Oh, this is being known. It's like this now. This is how the mind's relating. So to sustain that, to have continuity, we stabilize the mind by abandoning and preventing the unwholesome states from getting established and developing and maintaining the wholesome states so they dominate the mind. That's stabilize the mind so that it can do more subtle work which is this continuity of mindful, mindful awareness. And it's the continuity of mindful awareness that really develops samadhi, this beautiful balance of mind that can't help but have insight. And that's really the engine of this path of awakening that the Buddha taught. So Joseph has a talk on this too on the, at dharmaseed.org. It's a great website. All the uh, senior teachers in the country in this tradition of Buddhist practice um, have their talks there. Many of their talks, I have some there. Other people as well. And uh, thousands of talks. And so you can look for Joseph Goldstein's talk on the Eightfold Path on right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. 
and you'll get some of the same content there. But we have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some people in the room. Your questions or your own comments from your practice that you think are relevant to this discussion. So what comes to mind? Yeah. There is. Nick has it. Well, it's probably just a good habit to get into. And it also records better. And we'll just pass it around the room once we're finished. Hold it real close, Chimo. Uh So my name is Jake. So lately, last uh, probably month, I've been reading a lot, uh, Buddhism, um, Taoism, things like that. And when I gain knowledge, it's exciting, but it just kind of reinforces the idea of like a self-now-knowingness information. And the mind seems to be very sticky that says, oh, now I know this. And it really tries to hold on to that knowledge. And I find myself just, yeah, just kind of reinforcing the idea of just, yeah, like a self-knowingness information. And um, So I guess I don't know if you have any thoughts on kind of like approaching how to like gain knowledge with mindfulness versus, because, yeah, it's very exciting. And, you know, and then I just keep reading and reading and it, yeah. it seems to be beneficial. But thank you. Yeah, the Buddha completely understood our mind and he named exactly that experience and he calls it an imbalance between faith and wisdom. Because when we get book knowledge, these teachings are exciting because they make, on an intellectual level, they make a lot of sense. And for people who tend to have an intellectual orientation, we get a lot of energy just from that alone. And we we end up in this position that you described well, Jake, which is that we have all this energy, and it's like what we tend to do is want to preach and tell other people about how great it is, right? And you see this in a lot of sort of fundamentalist circles, which exist here as, as well as any place, where people are inspired by the idea of something. So the key is, as you get information, whether it's from a talk or from reading, remember that it's only valuable if you take the information and you begin to think and reflect about it in terms of your actual experience. Because we have to create a bridge from the information to the experience itself, the direct, immediate experience. That, that information is pointing to a truth. But the truth isn't conceptual. Really getting the concepts, that's not liberating at all. It's like you described. You know, it actually, the mind just gets tight. It kind of grasps the good ideas. But the ideas aren't to be grasped. It's like, you know, building a beautiful temple and taking it personally. And you're like, my temple's bigger than your temple. My God's bigger than your God. And, you know, we want to decorate it just to prove that it's like... And it ends up, like you said, getting sticky or stinky. So one of the ways, like, when you hear a talk, and you'll notice some of the more experienced people sometimes in a Dharma talk... They're in their meditation pose. They're not looking around. They're not moving around. They're not even trying to listen. But you don't have to try to listen to hear what's being said. You're just in the moment. And whatever the mind comprehends, the mind comprehends. And whatever the mind doesn't comprehend, the mind doesn't comprehend it. And you just are practicing with trust that some of it's going to land and get integrated and become who, what the mind is. And some of it, goes right through right now. And that's okay. And the same with reading. Instead of uh, reading a lot, you might just read a couple chapters, I mean a couple paragraphs or a couple pages and then put the book down for a while. 
and directly begin to integrate, like, what does that pointing to now? In terms of, I've got a mind, I've got a body, I have a life. So anything that's of value has to inform what's happening in the present moment. Otherwise, we're looking in the wrong place. Because the only place transformation happens is in the present moment. So any teaching that isn't relevant to what's here and now might be interesting, but it's not going to transform us in a spiritual sense. So that's why it's really nice to put it down and do the integration. And then, you know, two, three, four minutes, you might be ready to kind of do some more. So then read a little bit more and put it down and integrate. And that, that's how, for people who like to study, that's what I'd encourage you to do, is punctuate the study, listening and reading, with a direct, immediate integration of what, the, what you're reading and what you're hearing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? Thoughts? Questions? Yeah, all the way on the other end. Thanks, Tom. And then we'll have to end with this question. Or comment. My name's David, and I have a question about very basic meditation stuff. I'm fairly new here, and there, I don't know what the rules are, right? But you kind of pick up some of it, right? We mm-hmm. sit quietly. That's part of it. We're trying to. I'm learning to calm my mind. And how do you deal with itches? When, <laughs> Yeah. That's really my question. How do you deal with it when your face itches and your hair itches and you want to scratch? Yeah. But I feel like there's this culture that says you're supposed to, you said earlier you're supposed to let your, just let your body be as it is. And so I feel like I'm not supposed to scratch, but I don't, you know. Yeah. But, but you see, like a lot of what I said about aversion, this is exactly the training ground because you know it's not going to kill you, right? And we can have actually quite a bit of confidence that it's not dangerous, but it's but there's a lot of aversion that arises, like and even fear, and it's so interesting. But the great thing is then, like what I was saying about trial and error. So there you have, like either you're catching it before the aversion gets strong, and then you're experimenting trial and error about preventing the mind getting dominated by the hate of the itch, right? Or it's already there, and you've already been spinning about how and how much you want, and how good it will feel when you, <laughs> right? So then you're trying to abandon that, like. And so just have an open mind, like playful, a little playful, like, how might, let me just take care of that itch. <laughs> how might I prevent, like, the suffering from happening, the suffering of hating or wanting this itch to go away? What might, like, how might my mind hold this or relate to this that would be skillful? And all we might learn is, like, how not to make it much worse. But we'll learn if we keep playing with it. But if all we do is scratch, we, we lose, basically we, we've lost the lesson. And it's just a, then another lesson has to come. So part of the reason we sit still for a period of time is we're willing to take any teacher that shows up. It might be knee pain, it might be an itch, it might be some painful memory, it might be a lot of joy arises in the meditation. So we're going to get the whole... <laughs> we'll get the whole spectrum <laughs> distractions all the way so to whatever degree you can now when you can't use what's showing up in your experience as a teacher and all you're doing is practicing getting tight that's the time to quietly 
move your body, scratch, do whatever you have to do. Because it's not about torturing yourself. So as long as it can be a teacher and you're really studying the mind, then don't move. But when you can't do that, then do what you have to do and then settle back into a comfortable stillness. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's a good question that you brought up. And uh, remember, there's an intro class beginning Tuesday night. There's still a few spots. So anybody who's relatively new who'd like to do that, or even old-timers, some people come back to it over and over again, there's a six-week class Tuesday, 7.30 to 9, and I'll be teaching that. So thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.